Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, Florida fallout from a bombshell legal ruling in Alabama. We look at the ethical, legal, and practical impacts of granting personhood to frozen embryos. Later in the program, the legal limbo created by the state's perpetually changing death penalty laws. But first, in a decision that invoked scripture and the, quote, wrath of a holy God, the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court created a medical and political firestorm around the country. To discuss how it's impacting Florida, I'm joined now by Dr. Samuel Brown, professor at Mayo Clinic and medical director at Brown Fertility. Good morning, Dr. Brown. Good morning. And reproductive rights attorney Courtney Johnson with the Marks Gray Law Law Firm. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Courtney Johnson, how does this Alabama decision impact Florida? Sure. So I think maybe if you want to start, if you want to just talk about what the decision was and how it's what it is. Um, so it's it's the LePage versus Center for Reproductive Medicine, a case out of Alabama. And what happened was is that couples created embryos through IVF. And those were embryos were then um, cryogenically frozen. Dr. Brown can maybe talk about how that process works. But the lab where the embryos were frozen was connected to a hospital in Mobile, Alabama. And a patient from that hospital somehow gained access to the lab picked up a vial containing the frozen embryos, and they're they're frozen. It's not like an ice cube. It's a sub-zero <laughs> freezing, and it, it burned that person's hand. They dropped the vial. The embryos were destroyed. And so the, the parents, uh, the people who had created the embryos, uh, sued. And, and so that's how we ended up kind of talking about what we're here about today. Right. And so this decision basically said that they are entitled to like a wrongful death claim that these frozen embryos constitute a person. Yes. Um, and that has really transformed the landscape of Alabama. IVF clinics are now, you know, pausing their procedures. They're um, holding off on processing embryos. But it is impacting Florida, too. It's not just confined to Alabama. How is that the case? It is. Um, well, we have some concern just given the political climate in the state of Florida. Um, in this legislative session, Florida, um, a senator was trying to put forth a personhood bill um, in Florida, and that was actually tabled last Ex- night. Explain what a personhood bill is, because sure. they've been passed around the country. They have. And so um, personhood bills are where um, they're trying to get fetuses assigned a personhood status, where a fetus or an embryo can be legally recognized as a person. And so that implicates all kinds of things in the IVF or medical context as far as, you know, um, do you, is there manslaughter if an embryo fails to develop? And um, it's just extremely dangerous in this context. Dr. Brown, you've managed more than 30,000 IVF cycles in your career. You run the largest fertility clinic in the Southeast. Does the Alabama ruling concern you or should it concern your patients? Yes, it should concern us. And, and the concern is when our lawmakers and uh, justices make um, ill-informed decisions, it affects more people than imagined. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, this is a, a travesty for Alabama patients. I feel very bad for them. You know, you know one out of eight couples has infertility. And a, 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 lar- a really important, wonderful tool we have is IVF to help a lot of couples conceive and have a family. And they made the mistake, uh, maybe out of ignorance, but... To, to say one embryo equals one person, one child, that's the big mistake. They made this overreaching comment, and that is just not in fact. It, for, for a woman 35 and under, maybe one out of four embryos might be a baby, maybe. The other three are genetically abnormal and won't make a baby that are frozen at day five. A 40-year-old woman could have eight embryos in cryopreserved, and many times, none of them would be a child, and they have to do a second IVF cycle. And it might be one out of every twelve, one out of every fifteen embryos for that woman might make a baby, or one out of ten embryos might make a baby. So, making that overreaching definition that one embryo equals one child is causes lots of problems, leads to overreaching. Um, and, and for you at the medical level, you're looking at some of these embryos, determining that they may not be viable or may not be survivable without serious um, birth defects of some kind. So you're well, having to make a decision to essentially reduce the number or not implant those. Well, no, the, 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 the process is you, you, 
you put them in the woman and the bad ones don't take. 99% of the time, the bad ones just don't take or that's what a miscarriage is the majority of the time. So you really don't know which ones are the good ones or bad ones for the ones we put in the woman. You really don't know. So uh, it's not that exacting. It's not that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that great of a science to know which one is going to be the child. And many times all of the cryopreserved embryos or embryos that a woman makes won't, won't make a baby. So, so assigning personhood to every one embryo is just inappropriate. And it leads to these overreaching laws of manslaughter and so this is one of the unintended consequences, some would say, of the Dobbs decision. And that is the decision that overturned 50 years worth of abortion rights in this country under Roe versus Wade. Um, did you see this coming with the Dobbs decision? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I So I practice surrogacy and assisted reproductive law. And all of my colleagues across the country, we've just been waiting for the fallout from Dobbs. Absolutely. Into the field of IVF. Yes. Yes, because when you want to take the personhood of you can never have an abortion at any point in time, um, then it also, you know, I I think Dr. Brown is right. It was an unintended consequence, but you it it gets into the realm of IVF as well. So previously, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court defined viability as something after 24 weeks. And now basically it's left up to the states to define when life begins. Um, Georgia has taken a pretty dramatic uh, step in this interpretation. They have uh, guaranteed fetuses with constitutional rights, but they actually include fetuses as an income tax deduction, $3,000 per fetus. Um, And so not only have, you know, there's not only kind of the health implications for the mother, but there's really actually financial implications for the state. Absolutely. Georgia made a, a very similar inappropriate ruling where they were trying to give tax child credit for every embryo it's frozen. And again, not all of them are going to be a child. So another overreaching um, conclusion that's inappropriate. Not all, again, one embryo does not equal one child. I can share if you'd like from my personal experience. So um, I'm in this field after going through infertility and using a surrogate to have my son. And it took us 14 frozen embryos to have one child. And those were genetically normal embryos. Perfectly said. It's just, a, it's a, you've rolled the dice, honestly, is what it feels like. So it absolutely is not one embryo does not equal a child. You know, it, it begs the question, when does life begin? You know, that's what everybody wants to argue. And Dr. Howard and Georgiana Jones, who the pioneers of IVF, had the first IVF baby in the United States that really set the mark for IVF in the world, for modern IVF. He, he knew this problem was coming. That, that he, he foresee that this, this issue, uh, these problems coming and defining life. There was a, uh, back in the early, probably 20 years ago, he published an article on fertility and sterility that was really laid out. When is the beginning of life from a scientific, you know, uh, a scientific and humanist perspective? And um, it's, it's not when egg and sperm meet. It's not an embryo, it also has to attach to a uterus. There's three parties basically involved, an egg, a sperm, and a uterus that must be involved. And it also has to get to a certain stage because there can be early pregnancies that are a cancer called a molar pregnancy, and we don't call that a life. So it's really once you um, have a heartbeat uh, after about six weeks of pregnancy, that that's what this paper, the scientific conclusion came, that that really should be considered the beginning of life. Um, and then Ohio, the, the state of Ohio also made uh, an incorrect um, conclusion where saying that ectopic pregnancies could be saved. And mm. no, that's only going to kill the mother, pretty much. There, there's no good in an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a life. It doesn't make it to life. And um, so you see different states really struggling with this concept, like when does life begin and what is life? And, um, and to be clear, I mean, six weeks is a threshold that a lot of people think is uh, far too early in terms of defining a viable pregnancy, right? Because that's the threshold that Florida is trying to implement, that Alabama and Georgia have already implemented in terms of not an outright ban, but limiting the right to an abortion to six weeks. That's the the controversial area in my mind is between six weeks and 24 weeks, or I think they set the, the baby could live on its own after 22, 24 weeks. That's when it's considered to be independent um, and not dependent on others. 
or the mother. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the gray zone is between six weeks and 24 weeks, um, but not at this early stage. Not, you know, at one embryo equals one life. I, that, it's just they got it wrong. They got it wrong on this. We're talking about the impacts in Florida after Alabama's controversial court ruling that frozen embryos are children. You're welcome to join our conversation by calling 904-549-2937 or emailing us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Uh, we've got a call. Charles, good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect, Charles. Hey, good morning. Um, I was just curious because of the theocratic kind of sounding ruling that the judge made. It just tickled something in the back of my mind. And I'm wondering if this possibly is the same judge that about a decade ago got into a fight over having the Ten Commandments carved in a stone in front of a, you know, in front of this courthouse. Charles, this is Courtney. I can answer that. Um, in my research for this, uh, the judge, the chief justice that uh, said the comment about the wrath of the holy God, he, I don't think it was the same judge, but I, the article that I read said that he was an ally and an aide to that judge that when, um, caused the debacle about the Ten Commandments. So, so I was, you know, maybe his mentor or something like that for sure. For those who haven't seen the um, judge's commentary that accompanied that ruling, it may be worth reading just a little bit of it. He said the people of Alabama believe, quote, that each human being from the moment of conception is made in the image of God created by him to reflect his likeness. He then quoted the prophet Jeremiah and continued, quote, all three branches of government are subject to a constitutional mandate to treat each unborn human life with reverence, carving out an exception for the people in this case, small as they were, would be unacceptable to the people of this state who have required us to treat every human being in accordance with the fear of a holy God who made them in his image. We have a call. Uh, Mark on the west side. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Uh, my wife and I went to uh, IVF, uh, uh, God, 20 years ago now, and it ultimately wasn't successful, but it led us to adoption, so everything turned out fine. But at one point, we had... 10 or 12 uh, fertilized eggs ready to go, and we implanted like three or four of them, and that didn't work, and then we decided not to. And actually, I should probably check this out, because for the longest time, we had the the, the remaining fertilized embryos ready to go. We had about six of them, and this guy's telling us those are human. Are we going to have to uh, guarantee uh, that they will be implanted in somebody somewhere or, or us? And if not, we could go to jail or be fined or, you know, that's kind of scary. Good question. Dr. Brown. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what we're worried about. That's this, this ruling leads toward that in Alabama, the, these poor patients in Alabama. Um, you know, we know the majority of embryos are not going to make a life. And to say each one is a life and have um, personhood laws behind them is just inappropriate just inappropriate. So there was a bill that just last night was sort of tabled, Courtney. It was sailing through the House uh, in Florida. Um, There was a Senate companion bill, and it really wasn't until this Alabama ruling got all of this attention and stirred up this fervor that there was any attempt to modify the bill to say that it perhaps didn't include women who were undergoing IVF um, and you know, it didn't have any carve out for abortion. It basically said any human life, you know, that's uh, taken is a is a criminal. It could be a civil complaint. That's right. It was going to um, allow parents to receive financial damages. So a civil complaint uh, for the death of their unborn children, regardless of the stage of life of the fetus. So that's what happened in Alabama. Um the, our current law do, provides a remedy for those damages, but it defines it as minor child. So if if you if your minor child dies, you can sue in Florida under wrongful death. But they were trying to take that a step further and argue that unborn child it, it, that it would allow for unborn child because of the fallout from Alabama. They have uh, this the senator who was advancing the bill tabled it. Excellent. This um, would impact. I mean, anything that happens in Florida kind of has national reverberations anyway, um, just Florida being Florida. But this state has traditionally been a a haven for women who are unable to get abortions or treatments, you know, fertility-related treatments in other states. Um, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi ban all abortions 
at all stages of pregnancy, and Georgia and South Carolina prohibited after six weeks. So Florida has really been a destination for those kinds of procedures. And so laws like the one that was being proposed could conceivably curtail that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would have also affected IVF. It, um, you know, the, feed, the embryos develop at different stages. And so would you have a potential manslaughter claim against the embryologist if your embryo was developing at day four and stopped developing at day five, which commonly happens. And so that, that was a huge concern for me with that bill. We have a call, uh, Philip, on the west side. Good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Uh, good morning. Uh, in the Alabama case, uh, the state of Alabama has a state income tax. And if an embryo is considered a child, would that child be able to be claimed as a dependent on the Alabama tax form and be a loss of revenue because that child is a dependent to the state of Alabama? Good question, Philip. I mean, it's something that we talked about that is currently happening in Georgia, and it leads to some complexities, right? So somebody could conceivably miscarry after they've declared their child on their taxes. And then who investigates? Was it an abortion? Was it a miscarriage? Who is allowed to kind of delve into that woman's private reproductive life to get that answer? That, uh, that question you posed, Philip, was actually that that's come about a lot in the fallout of this kind of as a sarcastic. A lot of people are saying, well, I've got 15 embryos in, in Alabama frozen. I'm going to claim them on my tax return and then we'll see what the state feels about this. So um, it remains to be seen. We've got a call from Mark. Good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect, Mark. Hey, good morning. I uh, wanted to make a comment similar to the gentleman before me and, and kind of the, the, your guest talking about a sarcastic thing. Personally, I'm a pro-lifer, but when I look at all these rules out there, I just see the the ridiculousness of some rules. For example, in some states, a drunk driver could be charged with two counts of vehicular manslaughter if he kills a pregnant woman, even if she was driving to the abortion clinic. And I just see a ridiculousness in the way that we apply some of these laws. That was just my comment. Thanks, Mark. Um, it has made, in some ways, for strange bedfellows, Dr. Brown, because Issues of reproductive rights touch not only on IVF and the right, you know, to seek a pregnancy, but also abortion and the right to terminate a pregnancy. And in this issue, uh, it seems that those two groups have found common ground. Yes. And, and the issue is the ill-defined nature of when does life begin? When does personhood begin? And... Um, I can understand. I can see the lawmakers struggling with this. And they need to take scientific information to heart. They, they, the lawmakers need to get the information. They need to be educated on where, where, what's our best understanding of when life begins. It, it's not when the egg and sperm come together. It, it, it's, it's not with the initial implantation of an, of an embryo. Um, it's, it's later. It's later. And then you know, the argument is where, where's the cutoff for where that could be a viable person. And um, again, back to the original definition by Dr. Howard and Georgiana Jones in Norfolk, Virginia, with the, the first IVF center in the United States, it, it was so forward thinking to, to show that, you know, it, it's really, it's after six, it's after six and a half weeks of gestation is when you could consider that a life, not it's not one embryo equals one child. It is not the case. That it's just in, inaccurate scientifically. It's, it's not what happens. You know, there's an, another way that this Alabama decision is impacting Florida, and that's in the courts. Um, right now, there is a proposed ballot initiative that would guarantee a constitutional right to abortion in Florida, and that initiative is being challenged by the Attorney General, Ashley Moody, as well as a Christian conservative law firm called the Liberty Council, and immediately after this Alabama decision, they filed a brief in that case citing the Alabama decision as a justification for protecting even non-viable babies. It says that from the moment of conception, quote, an unborn child has a legally protected right of a person. Courtney. They did. And I, I saw that. Uh, like Dr. Brown has said, just because egg and sperm meet doesn't mean that it's going to become a, a child. And I say that as someone... Listen, 
I think embryos are very precious. They're the potential, a wonderful potential for life. But every single embryo is not going to become a child. And to try to um, impart religious theocracy or beliefs upon people through legal channels is not, it's, it's not based in science. It's not, it's not based in law and it's inappropriate. What about the, I've heard a lot of people question whether the separation of church and state was violated in this judge's commentary that accompanied this decision. What's your take on that? I think when you use a phrase like the, you, the wrath, you incur the wrath of the holy God. Uh, absolutely. But the decision itself was interpreting an Alabama statute from 1872. And, you know, the judges look at it. I think the decision also cited several times that this is what the people of Alabama through their legislatures chose and have consistently chose. They had a more recent amendment. I think it was in 2018 or so recognizing the sanctity of unborn life. So that's kind of why we have the three branches of government. And if the people have voted in, um, these legislatures and uh, these, you know, lawmakers that enact those type of laws, then the judges in this case were interpreting Alabama law very narrowly. And because it is interpreting Alabama law, I've heard some interpret it to say that that would kind of preserve this issue within the state of Alabama and prevent it from being appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what we think. Um, it Because it did only just, it was a very narrow issue interpreting Alabama law. So there's really no grounds for this U.S. Supreme Court to get involved. That's not to say that in another case and similar fact scenario that the United States Supreme Court couldn't somehow become involved. But this case, as it appears right now, is really just limited um, to Alabama. And that's because of Dobbs, because there is no national... Correct. Right. Correct. Mm -hmm. We've got a call, Jerry, in St. Augustine. Good morning, Jerry. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, good morning. Yes. Um, I just had a couple of comments. The first one is um, I just wanted to point out that, especially uh, what we're talking about, lawmakers who are using their own particular religion to guide their choices instead of science, um, is, is this a road that personally, I feel should not be taken. Mm -hmm. And the the second uh, question, I guess, or point is um, there's a lot of exaggerations of what ifs in in all these different cases. For instance, I wondered what um, what is the what is the what is the situation that um, a woman who is pregnant getting hit by a car, that person that hits her is liable, even if she's quote unquote going to the abortion clinic. Um, Is that even a law? Is that even something that actually happened? And I feel like those two things that I just mentioned just bring exaggeration or what ifs to these, to these situations right. and make them more volatile. Thanks, Jerry. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of what ifs to these questions, unknowns that, how do you tell your patients to prepare, Dr. Brown? No, j- just to, to try to help answer that question for her, you know, our lawmakers are responsible to their, who voted them in office, who, their constituency, who, who voted them in, and they're allowed to use emotion and with law and they're allowed and and there's certain circumstances where most in my mind most circumstances should be individualized mm-hmm. you know like you, you know individual circumstances if somebody is killed in a car wreck and you want to call it manslaughter because she was pregnant um i mean i think all these should be individually interpreted and not blanket interpretation that's what we're talking about there's a blanket interpretation here in alabama that uh, that encompasses too much so these blanket laws you know, are just inappropriate. Things, in my mind, should be more individualized and taking the circumstances into consideration. Uh, Courtney, last question. Um, do you have any suggestions about how people should prepare or or cope with the possibility that these encroachments will continue? Yeah, so actually, um, there was such outrage from this that the um, Alabama legislators have started, there's several bills being advanced in Alabama right now that said, whoa, whoa, that's not what we meant. We're trying to, we're going to claw this back and we're trying to protect IVF. Um, So I I think that that is good. I would just recommend um, continue to stay informed with what the legal status of things things are in Florida. That personhood bill is tabled. It looks like it's not going to make it through 
2024 legislative session. So it's a topic for potentially another day, but um, stay informed and um, yeah. Yeah. Pay attention. All right. Well, Dr. Samuel Brown, uh, attorney Courtney Johnson, thanks to both of you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we talk to lawyers on both sides about how Florida's ever-changing death penalty laws impact the integrity of the process. Welcome back. I'm joined now by two experienced death penalty attorneys, defense counsel Patrick Carodi and veteran prosecutor Dan Skinner, director of the Homicide Division at the State Attorney's Office. Welcome, both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here. So I want to make the most of the time we have on this complicated subject. So, Dan, if you would just give us a nickel version of what's happening. So death penalty cases for nearly a decade have been getting recycled and defendants resentenced because of changes to Florida's death penalty law. Why is that happening? Yes, when the Hearst decision was handed down, um, the Supreme Court was telling us that uh, at that time that unanimity is required by a jury. So, And ultimately, um, those cases that did not receive a verdict by a jury of 12-0, in other words, 7-5 all the way to 11-1, received a resentencing. That's what the Hearst Court required um, that has since been receded from in the Poole case, P-O-O-L-E, uh, where that uni- unanimity requirement now is only with respect to an aggravating factor. So is the legislature moving the goalposts? I mean, the, initially there was no unanimity required from a jury. Then after 2016, jury unanimity was required. All of these cases coming up for resentencings. And now the law has changed yet again. The state says you don't have to have a unanimous verdict uh, for death. Yes. Prior to the Hearst decision by the Florida Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, it was 7-5. That was a bare majority. And now it's a super majority. So it's, it's more stringent that, that it, than it was for many, many years. Um, and under the 7-5 uh, capital scheme, um, that's all that was required. So now today, with respect to where we sit, um, it, it is tougher than it was before. The aberration, from our viewpoint, was the Hearst case, and the Supreme Court reversed itself uh, in pool uh, when it re- did require unanimity. So our position is the 8-4 uh, is the law. Um, it, is, it is what we're proceeding under. We're asking judges to proceed to these death penalty hearings, the resentencing hearings that are required by Hearst under the 8-4 capital uh, sentencing statute. Um, Patrick Rohde, this now makes Florida somewhat of an outlier nationally, though, um, not having not requiring a unanimous jury verdict and allowing something as um, as like an eight four verdict that that is unique now to to the United States. Right. Well, it's unique to Florida. We are the outlier at eight four Alabama, I think, is ten two. And then every other state in the union, which I think is around 25 states, plus the military and the federal government that have a death penalty statute on the books require a unanimous jury verdict for the death penalty to be imposed. Obviously, out of those 25 states and the federal government and the military, not all of them are actively using their death penalty statute or executing people. But, you know, Florida is one of the states where we are actively using our statute. We are actively executing people. And uh, we are the outlier at 8-4. 
So you handle death penalty cases. You've handled a number of cases with Dan here even. Um, how did this reversal, how is it impacting your uh, ability to represent these clients? How does it impact their chances of either getting of getting a life sentence versus death on a resentencing? So that's a really good question. Uh, we are doing the same things that we have been doing since the death penalty um, litigation restarted again after the Hearst decision in 2016. Um, and, you know, uh, I will say that statewide, I think that after Hearst, there was a big push for training uh, capital legal teams. Uh, we're getting better at things like mitigation. I think the science uh, that's involved in mitigation, brain science is Explain what better. mitigation is. Not everybody will know. But that in a death penalty case, what's the significance <clears throat> of what's called mitigation? Sure. So any what the jury's instructed is that the decision basically on whether someone who's been convicted of first degree murder and now capital sexual battery in the state of Florida, that's something new also. Uh, but whether or not that defendant who's now been convicted, you move to a penalty phase. So there's no question as to whether or not they're guilty or innocent. They have been found guilty. And then the question largely becomes a weighing process as to what is aggravation regarding the crime uh, weighed against mitigation, which is essentially anything in a defendant's background character or the crime itself that may be a reason uh, not to impose a death sentence. And the only alternative under Florida's law to a death sentence is a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. So mitigation could be things like a difficult childhood that the defendant has a, uh, a brain injury, that the defendant um, may have low intellectual function, but not at the level that would bar execution. They have to be intellectually disabled uh, to to not be executed under the laws of the United States. Um, so, but mitigation could be anything. Mitigation could be that they were a good son, um, a good brother, a good sister. And in a lot of these Hearst cases, especially the ones that, that Dan and I have had, um, you know, some of them are 15 or 20 years old and, and the defendant comes back and a lot of them have good records in prison. I mean, they've been in prison for 15 years and they've had good behavior and, and that's mitigation. And when you say that defense teams have gotten better at mitigation, what do you mean? Well, there's been a lot of training and and um, a lot of expertise developed in the area as far as how you investigate it. Um there's been a lot of advances in using things like MRIs and PET scans to identify traumatic brain injury and other types of brain in injuries. And so I think the lawyers and and the people we use have gotten better at where to look for this evidence. And I think the science has advanced also in, in giving us more information to present to a jury. And I know you think that there's other reasons that these cases have gone you know, for life on resentencing versus death. And I want to get to some of those in a minute. But Dan, I want to ask you, um, there was a recent study done by the uh, Death Penalty Information Center that found of those Hearst cases, those are the cases that are required to come back before a jury to be resentenced because they weren't unanimous, that 82 percent of those were resentenced to life instead of death. What does that tell you about the legitimacy of the original sentence? Sure. That's a great question, too. Our, our position is when the, when the Hearst decision was handed down, each respective state attorney's office in Florida received a monumental amount of work that comes back to them with no additional staff. So on top of uh, prosecuting cases that we normally do, our office carries between 200 and 225 homicides at any given time. Um, when Hearst came back, it added to that. In, in Duval County, Northeast Florida, we received back about 30 Hearst cases that we had to re-sentence. Um, we think resentencing and we think, well, it's just, you know, a hearing one afternoon. Well, it is not. Um, as Mr. Carodi has noted, the defense has gotten incredibly effective at, pre at pre the presentation of mitigation. Um, they present it to us. Um, those cases, uh, we now have a grand jury indictment review panel when Ms. Nelson became state attorney. Uh, one of the first things she did was create that panel. That panel has about 150 years of prosecutorial experience on it. We review every single case uh, for death penalty consideration. That is a first-degree murder. Uh, we do that based on what the legislature gives us with the aggravating factors and the mitigating circumstances. When those cases came back, uh, we had to evaluate each and every one of those. Many um, we resolve for life. We, the, the defense, as Mr. Carodi pointed out, presented that mitigation. It is much more in-depth today than it maybe it was 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so we, we review that and make a decision whether we should go forward. 
um, in continuing to seek the death penalty. That's correct. That, that is correct. And ultimately, um, one of the sort of factors in that consideration is talking to the victim's family. So they're getting a phone call from us and, and then several meetings thereafter where we kind of explain the process. And many of them are frustrated after years and years of having their convictions uh, affirmed and, and, and their particular defendant that killed their loved one is on death row. When they came back, they're now under the impression that they have to do this all over again, which they did. Uh, and we tell them that because the resentencing is not just an afternoon of putting on aggravation and mitigation. It's selecting a whole new jury. It's presenting the case anew as if that jury never heard the facts because they have not. It's a jury today. Um, so ultimately, when we explain that to victims' families, many of them just tell us, I can't do that again. It's too emotional. Uh, it was 15, 17, 12, 18 years ago. Uh, and they, uh, in, in, a lot of, in a lot of these cases, particu particularly the Hearst cases we're talking about, um, they ask us to take the life sentence recommendation. They ask us to go to the court and represent on behalf of the state of Florida that, we, that we're recommending a life sentence. And we've done that. The heaviest calculus in that whole process is the victim's family's input. So that's very important to us. One other consideration that's very troubling in all the Hearst cases, many of the detectives, many of the analysts, the FDLE analysts, they're retired. Uh, they no longer work uh, in law enforcement. They're difficult uh, to track down with respect to civilian witnesses. So putting these cases back together and having to, in essence, put on the entire case again, times 30, which we had in Duval County, was a monumental task. So most certainly we sat down as a committee and there are nine of us on our committee and Ms. Nelson's grand jury indictment review panel. And we discussed those and we put all that on the table and make the decision of whether we should continue to seek the death penalty. Many of those cases, we did make the decision ourselves without putting the burden on a court or a jury, uh, based on the mitigation, the victim's family's wishes, the absence of witnesses to resolve those cases for life. How many of those 30 cases did you resolve without taking it to, to court? There, I, I think we're the exact number was 29. Um, we've probably taken to trial or and or resentencing as it's called in about eight of those. Um, so, and we still, in fact, there's one going this week. So that number is, is obviously uh, fluid. Um, the Cecil King case is going this week. It's also a Hearst resentencing. So remind us the circumstances of Cecil King. Sure. That, that was a, a elderly female who was killed uh, by, by a, an individual. I believe the, the vote was eight, four um, that obviously required a new sentencing hearing under Hearst. Um, so that's proceeding back to, to a trial this week. That was a case that happened uh, of a family that lived off a, a, a quiet neighborhood off of Bay Meadows road where an elderly female was killed. Um, the defendant went to trial, was found guilty, and uh, ultimately was sent back just for one of these Hearst resentencings. I, I believe that case was from 2012, so that's a decade ago. We were able to piece that one back together. Mr. Ber Bernie De La Rionda is trying that on behalf of the state. Um, so it's, again, a very difficult situation trying to put cases back together and hail witnesses back to court and get them to come in and testify. And, and what about that case merits going for the death penalty a second time? Sure. I can't speak to the specifics, but I know the family was very cooperative uh, in that particular case. It's pending now, so we won't go into, into any individual conversations with them. But they were very cooperative with us uh, and wanted uh, to proceed. Um, ultimately, that is one of the heaviest factors. Mr. Crody and I have had two cases personally. Uh, that we've uh, that we've dealt with under the Hearst context, um, and one of those families was adamant not to proceed, and one of those families that I had was adamant that we do proceed. Um, one of those, Mr. Crody and I, in a case called Robert Peterson, uh, we tried that case early last year in a new in, in a Hearst context. So uh, the other one, Justin McMillan, we resolved for life. The family was extremely insistent that they, that we resolve that case. So. It really is one of the driving factors that helps us in, in, reach, in reaching our decision. And sometimes family members um, don't support going back to trial, but you still do. I know that in the case of the, those three defendants who were convicted of burying an elderly couple alive, the daughter, who's the closest relative to the two elderly adults, doesn't support the death penalty. In fact, has become an advocate for death row inmates. So how do you negotiate that? Sure. And that's why the state of Florida has to make the ultimate decision. We've had immediate family members where a husband and a husband and wife of a deceased daughter of theirs, one wants the death penalty and the other does not. 
So when you have equal next of kin in those situations, ultimately we have to make that decision to move forward. That sort of prompts us to do that analysis with respect to weighing those aggravating factors versus the mitigation that the defense provides to us. Patrick, you've talked about, you know, mitigation has gotten better. Perhaps lawyering has gotten better. Views have evolved on the death penalty. Um, But what do you think is the primary reason that the cases have gotten harder in terms of achieving a death penalty? So I, I do think that people maybe see more hope for redemption and remorse than maybe they did 10 years ago. I don't know if COVID had anything to do with that. I'm I'm not, you know, a sociologist or a psychologist, but I do think um, that there there have also been a change of demographics in Jacksonville. I can tell you that when when I'm picking a jury uh, these days, the majority of the people that are that you're picking from are not from Jacksonville originally. There are a lot of a lot of people that have moved um, to Jacksonville. So you have a lot of people that are newer to Jacksonville and maybe, um, you know, the demographics and views on death have changed. It doesn't seem fair fundamentally that some people were given a life sentence under the requirement for unanimity because the jury wasn't unanimous. And even just months later, somebody received death, even in the same crime, the one that we were just referencing, that awful buried alive case. The defendants um, had similar jury verdicts that one got life and one got death. So uh, and I represented Tiffany Cole, who was part of that. Um, what was interesting is there were three defendants that got resentencings. The first one, Alan Wade, proceeded. He proceeded under the unanimity statute. So 12-0 if they wanted um, to obtain a death sentence for him, he got life. And then later, um, initially in that, Michael Jackson and Alan Wade were, were joined together to go together. Um, and then they were severed during jury selection. So Michael Jackson you know, was going to go later. Uh, by the time Mr. Jackson went, I think the statute had changed. And so he now, you know, faced the 8-4 statute. And then when we tried Tiffany Cole, um, she faced 8-4. Mr. Jackson got death, and I believe the vote was 8-4. So if he had gone under unanimity, he would have gotten a life sentence. And sort of ironic that he requested to sever. I mean, that was the defendant's decision. Um, Dan, just briefly, is it fair? I mean, is it fair that you're having cases where literally within a matter of months, it's either life or death based on the same facts and the same jury verdict. Well, it works both ways. I tried a case in February and the jury vote was 10-2 when it was unanimity. And then the the law changed a couple months later where he would have received death. So he received the benefit of that that particular statute in effect that now that today it's clear the pool court, the pool Florida Supreme Court their decision was we were wrong on hers. That was bad law. And the legislature came along and changed the law. Our governor signed that law into effect. Prosecutors, our job is, is to do one thing, enforce the law, seek justice for these families, enforce the law as it is on our books today. So, yes, we do believe it is fair. Well, Attorney Patrick Carodi, Prosecutor Dan Skinner, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ann. Thank, thank you, you very Ann. much. And in just a minute, our own Hurley Winkler with the Jacksonville Music Experience interviews the artist behind His Golden Messenger ahead of his Wednesday show in Jacksonville. Life South Community Blood Centers, providing blood and patient services to the local hospitals, serving patients in this community. Donating blood with Life South helps save lives. More at lifesouth.org to find a blood drive near you. ServPro, independently owned and operated. Whether it's water, mold, or fire damage, they'll help you restore your home or business. ServPro is available 24-7. ServPro, helping to make it like it never even happened. Dengue fever is spreading fast in Brazil with a million cases recorded this year already. And is in a track to break all records of transmissions. Public health experts are concerned this potentially fatal mosquito-borne disease could signal a surge of cases in other countries. That story next time on The World. This afternoon at 3 
here on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, Busy Phillips, a star of the new movie musical adaptation of Tina Fey's Mean Girls. And she's in the streaming series Girls 5 Eva about a girl group that reunites decades after their one hit. Phillips' first big role was in the series Freaks and Geeks. In her memoir, she's written about misogyny she's faced in Hollywood and in her personal life. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. You Dreamed of Empires has been called a twisty, comic reimagining of the conquest of ancient Mexico. If you're Mexican, you're, you're always devoured by this nostalgia that thing that never happened. All, all that beautiful world not getting extinct. We speak to its author, Alvaro Enrique, about rewriting history next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News Like all the best things in life, M.C. Taylor's process begins in a notebook. You know, stuff that appears in those notebooks, it's not, there's nothing in, in those notebooks that is some kind of masterpiece of writing. It's more just, it's more just a, a sentence here, a, a combination of words there, a certain type of rhyme that I thought of or that I heard. Won't you this folk singer-songwriter has been making music under the moniker His Golden Messenger since 2007. On February 28th, he'll be here in Jacksonville performing at the Intuition Aleworks Beer Hall. Welcome to Songwriting School, where we talk to musicians about how they write their songs. I'm Hurley Winkler. Here's my conversation with MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. Won't you come? So how would you say your songwriting process has evolved over time? I think that the way that I wrote songs when I was, you know, just learning how to write them probably would look pretty diligent to, to somebody from the outside. Um, I feel like I had more of a, a routine. And I feel like as I've gotten older, as I've written more songs, I'm trying to like have an easy relationship with the process of creation. So I work very hard when, when like the spirit is on me, but there might be, you know, weeks where I don't touch a guitar. I'm always writing. I'm, I, I always have multiple notebooks going and I feel like you know, that's an important part of, it's almost like gathering, yeah, gathering fuel for the fire that, that um, always comes eventually. I'm always trying to surprise myself and put myself into situations where I can't, I can't um, predict or know what is going to come out. I'd love to hear more about this gathering process that you do in your notebooks. How do you know when something is worthy of considering to put in a song? Sometimes I come back to the notebooks because I'm looking for a certain type of vibe that may appear to me in the words as I'm, as I'm flipping through um, the pages. And sometimes I'm looking for a rhythm this conception of me as like, like a writerly songwriter and I really love that um, I think that's so cool and I feel like part of my job is to be a poet for sure and I love language and I love the way that words feel together
You had a new record come out back in August called Jump for Joy. Who were some of your songwriting influences when working on this new collection of songs? I mean, my my songwriting inspirations have have kind of always been consistent. I love um, I love someone like Bill Withers. I think Bill Withers had like an exquisite touch with writing and melody. Clapped in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand Played a tambourine so well I love Curtis Mayfield. The way he blends like really deep rhythm. People get ready as a train a coming You don't need no yeah, sort of like politically astute songwriting is incredible. Well, what has songwriting been like for you lately? Have you been working on something new? Just making sounds. Like I, making sound is a big part of it for me these days. It's like sometimes I just have to go kind of like make make a racket, sort of, and just see what comes out and see if I feel like there are words that need to accompany the sounds. Well, we hope you'll keep making a racket because clearly the racket making is bringing up some really great stuff. And we're excited to have you in Jacksonville soon. Thanks for taking some time to tell us about your songwriting process today, MC. I'm so glad to. Thank you for having me. That was MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. The singer-songwriter will be at the Intuition Aleworks Beer Hall on February 28th. For ticket information and more, head over to jacksmusic.org. Well, that's Hurley Winkler. You can listen to her program every Saturday night at 8 o'clock. It's called the Jack's Music Hour, and she is just terrific. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. You can email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight. You can also find our entire show archive at wjct.org or on your favorite podcast platform. Join us again Wednesday when we look at how a proposed titanium mine threatens the health and future of the ancient Okefenokee Swamp. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.